Well, thank you very much. I think you're my hero, so. <laughs> except you don't know what's in store for you yet, so <laughs> we're warning you. I'd like to thank you all for having me here and um, for our sponsors for bringing this all together because I think uh, innovation is also quite exciting. And for me, it's all about the cheetah. So having a, a cheetah picture up here, and I think, do I have to wear this or not, sir? No, okay. I'm pretty loud, all right. So um, I'm gonna try to tell you a story, and I'm hopefully, it's not gonna be real technical, it's gonna be a story. And it's a story about the cheetah and why um, it needs help and how we're going about trying to, to help it. But the cheetah is the fastest land animal, and I think it's the most wonderful species there is on Earth. I'm not at all biased or partial, it just is. And I hope that you'll all understand that too uh, by the end of, of my talk. This is hopefully going to be a short little video that's gonna come on, and I never know, I might be, I'm a little bit technically challenged sometimes, and hope that it actually comes on. It should come on about now. And um, throughout Africa, a lot of people don't know the difference between uh, what's a cheetah and a leopard, and most people call them tigers. But cheetahs have these very beautiful spots. And um, they're, they're very special, being the fastest land animal. But we have in Namibia the largest remaining wild population of cheetahs, but we also have some now in Namibia that are orphans, that they live in our sanctuary, which has been actually one of the successes of the work that we've done to try to save the cheetah. But if you can sort of look at the cheetah and think about it as, I think, the highest form of um, speed and elegance. There's nothing on earth can go the speed of 70 miles an hour. Uh, those long legs, they have dog-like claws that help them grip the ground. Everything about the cheetah has been built for speed. An aerodynamic head, a tail that use, works as a rudder for balance so they don't roll over and spin out when they're running so fast. And yet Africa's changing today. And I um, am constantly, as I look at the cheetah and have worked with it for over 30 years, wonder, can indeed we see Africa in 100 years and still see the cheetah on the earth. Therefore, a lot of the work that I do today is to try to look at how to change the face of Africa so that it goes from a place where cheetahs can live from the place it is today, a place that is oftentimes disconnected from this beautiful wildlife that we consider to be gorgeous, to a place of, of poverty, of um, a disconnect between nature, natural resources, and the world at large not understanding how special Africa is. So from the eyes of the cheetah tonight, I'm hoping to share with you the story of the cheetah. The cheetah's had a long history on Earth. It's been on Earth uh, for about um, six million years, and just bringing you back the last hundred years, uh, it had a very uh, large distribution. It went throughout all of a um, India, the Middle East, and throughout Africa. Today, the world's population is reduced by about 90%, and these black spots are where the cheetahs are found today. And I live in the country of Namibia. There were 100,000 at 1900. Today, there are less than 15,000 cheetahs. We also have a field base out of Kenya where we are looking at that population being um, less than 1,000 cheetahs. And many people say, I've been to Kenya, I've seen cheetahs, they're all over. But um, I'm gonna tell you, I think, a little stories between um, re saving the cheetah in Namibia and trying to save them if there's really a chance in, in Kenya. 
Our population in Namibia, and that is where we live, where I live, and where our international field base is, when I started working there in the middle 70s, the population was probably about 6,000 individuals. When I moved there in 1990, it was about 2,000. So coming up to 3,000 is very important. 20% of the world's population of cheetahs is living there. And yet through the other 26 countries throughout Africa, two-thirds of those populations are not viable any longer because the numbers have become so low. The biggest problem, that's loss of habitat. And so every endangered species we talk about today, you hear the words loss of habitat. And what does that mean? And for the cheetah, cheetahs don't do well in protected game reserves. They're found outside of protected game reserves. They come into conflict with lions and hyenas in those reserves who kill their young, steal their food, and they push the cheetah out. And with that, um, I, I like to use this as an example, is that the cheetahs taught me how to think outside of the box. If I have to save the cheetah, I can't be in a game reserve. And I think most people have thought, well, we put game reserves together, and from that, life's going to be fine. And the cheetah raised its little tail up and said, if I'm going to survive, it's not going to be in these game reserves. You're going to have to find some different situations. So with loss of habitat, moving outside of reserves, they're in conflict, usually with humans. How did I end up in Namibia? Um, saving cheetahs. I started working with cheetahs back in the early 1970s, so in 74, and I started developing the most um, successful captive breeding program in North America and the third most successful in the world. And this was at a wildlife park in Oregon called the Wildlife Safari. And I got involved in it because as I started working there as a young um, person, I said, I want to know about cheetahs. They're in my care. They just come from Namibia. And actually, the, I wrote to people around the world, and they said, when you find out something about cheetahs, let us know. They don't breed well in captivity, and they, they die at a fairly young age. So what are you going to do about it? So I started learning everything I could do. And in 77, I actually had an opportunity of taking a captive-born cheetah named Kayam, who I hand-raised. And this was a first-of-its-kind research project to Namibia, Africa, which is the homeland of her parents. And that was to find out if a captive-born cheetah could learn how to hunt. Well, those were the days of Born Free and Joy Adamson, and we thought that we could take animals and put them back out into the wild. Well, that was fine. Remember, today, the biggest problem is loss of habitat. So back in the 70s, it was like, well, well, we can't get them to breed well, but okay, we could then try to put them back into the wild. So I ended up in Namibia. And I taught the cheetah how to hunt, but I also found out that farmers were killing cheetahs like flies, that there were already a whole bunch of wild cheetahs that knew how to live out into the wild, and that maybe somebody should save those wild cheetahs. And I was young back in the early 70s, and I had what I call the they factor. They will take care of the animals. And as my years went on, I found out that they weren't going to do anything. And who was they? They became me, and so I ended up having to do something about it. And living in the wild is not just learning how to hunt, it's very complex. A mother teaches her cubs how to live in the wild for 18 to 22 months. She teaches them not just how to kill, but where to find water, where to avoid people, where to find wildlife. So it became a very complex situation. What I found most in Africa was that cheetahs were in conflict. They were vermin. Uh, people were call killing them, eight to 900 cheetahs a year. And nobody knew anything about the cheetahs in Africa either. The local people, and this is a local tribe by where I live, which are the Herero-speaking people, 
Um, most of the people, again, don't know the difference between a leopard or a cheetah. They don't know if it was a jackal that did it, a domestic dog, a leopard, or a cheetah. And so if they see any vermin, and this is a worldwide situation, a predator is something that people should kill and remove. Bringing you now into Namibia a little bit more, Namibia is a country that is about two and a half times the size of California. And it is supported by agriculture. And in the area what I've circled here, that's where 95% of our cheetahs are living. And they're in the heartland of commercial livestock farming which supports our nation. And so with that, the farmers were at war with the cheetahs when I first went there. But this map, you need to sort of understand the map, unfortunately, to sort of go through the process that I've gone through in um, understanding the systems. And farming systems are really important. So these are all commercial farms, and that's where our livestock, our cattle, um, goats and sheep are, but mostly the commercial farming. And these are communal farms. And this is where, during apartheid, the tribes were put. And we have about um, 11 tribes, African tribes, and they were split up from the Domero-speaking people to the Herero, and they were put into very subsistence lands, and the people living there are in a very subsistence lifestyle. And um, then these are our game reserves that are in red. And Natasha is a very large, lovely game reserve. encourage everyone to come and visit it. But it doesn't have any cheetahs. It's got maybe 50, and they don't live long because we have endemic anthrax. And this is the largest and oldest skill, um, coast and dunes. Uh, but there aren't any cheetahs there because it's much too dry. So they live on commercial farmland. But another thing is, is cheetahs are supposed to eat game. Where in the middle of our country, 70% of our wildlife lives on these commercial livestock lands. And yet, if a cheetah even goes out and catches livestock or wildlife, there becomes an emotional issue that we're dealing with because the wildlife also has a value. So then you end up with, is it livestock? And is it, per, is it perceived or is it actual? And are the problems around that of um, the game? Another problem that we have in uh, Namibia and in southern Africa are growing game farms. And these are very high fences. And the cheetahs uh, inside of the game fences are wild game. And so the cheetahs, if they get into these game fences, they will eat the wild game, which is what they're supposed to eat. And then the farmers will catch and remove more. Well, how does the cheetah get into that game fence? And this is important for the end of my talk. Um, is that along the fence line, the cheetahs will walk on these, these roads. And the way warthogs also go in and out of these game fences, and what they do is they dig holes under. And so the cheetah's walking along, and they don't have really good eyesight right up close. But as they walk along, they see, oh, there's a little hole. I guess I'll duck under. And they go in, and they're in candy land with all the wildlife. And um, so the warthogs become a big problem for the, the, the um, cheetahs. So the big question I have was, is it a problem cheetah or is it a problem farmer? So that was the biggest question that I went out to try to answer. Cheetahs also have a behavior as they go to these trees. And these trees are called marking trees, play trees, spiel boom, um, 
or newspaper trees, and it's where cheetahs go and mark territories. They talk and communicate through their, uh, their markings, their feces, and the urine, and the farmers in Namibia found that they could catch them in these traps. These are live traps, and the cheetah will walk in and get caught on, they step on that, and the cage doors go down, and if you catch one cheetah, you're going to catch an entire family because of their social makeup. And in the 1980s, the farmers were killing, catching and killing eight to 900 cheetahs a year at these play trees. So over all these years and kept asking, well, somebody's got to do it, I ended up finally um, taking the bull by the horn and I founded the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Well, there really aren't any books on how do you set up a nonprofit conservation organization for uh, a vermin, cheetahs. So um, I did anyway. And I sold the little house that I had in Oregon, which land there wasn't worth very much. And I bought a little Land Rover and moved over to Namibia with my little bag of not very much money and set up a foundation, which is a, the first international organization, which has a very big vision. Our vision is to save um, the cheetah along with uh, working together with people so we can live together, with our mission being to be an internationally recognized center of excellence in um, research and education on cheetahs and their ecosystems. So although we are the Cheetah Conservation Fund, that's a little bit more sexy than being called the Cheetah's Ecosystem Conservation Fund. So I always try to remind everybody it's all about how systems work. So we do work with all the stakeholders from the farmer who, again, if, if you lose livestock, the issues are very emotional. And every calf that is lost, and cheetahs can only catch calves up to six months, main losses under one month, that is going to be their most valuable calf there is, no matter what. Um, and from the cheetahs that were being caught by the farmers, and um, we started asking the farmers if we couldn't get our hands on the animals, if we could go in. We wanted to find out more about the biology of cheetahs, understanding more about the genetic makeup and some of the diseases. So I started getting the farmers to be my research collaborators, and they allowed me to anesthetize the cheetah, and I'd get their hands on the cheetah as well. Oh, please, oh, won't you help me pick the cheetah up and move it over here, and could you hold the leg up, and we'll take some blood, and look in the mouth, and can you believe these interesting things we're seeing about the cheetah? And the farmers would say, but we don't know very much about the cheetah. How does it live out there? I thought it was a dog. Doesn't it suck the blood? Isn't it a vampire? Um, all these very interesting things that the farmers wanted to learn more about. So ideally, we want to work with our stakeholders to achieve our best practice in conservation and management of all of our world's cheetahs. So we use a lot of training techniques, and we believe that every young person is going to be the future of not only Africa, but the future of our world. Our center is an open-to-the-public field research center, and we opened our center up in 2000 um, for, uh, for people to come in. So today, anyone can come to us, and we're in the middle of the bush. We're about 45 minutes from our local town, and yet we find local farmers, Herero-speaking people coming in. We get local um, communities coming in, school groups all the time, to learn about what we're doing. So we're a teaching facility that anybody can come in at any time, and if we're working on anything, people come right on in, and we put them to work too. So our goal is to assure the survival of the cheetah, and our research goal is to provide the scientific support for our conservation activities. And we've taken a very systematic approach to the work that we're doing in cheetah conservation. We need to quantify the threats and set priorities, finding out really what's going on 
out there, taking conservation action, and then monitoring and evaluating. And the system goes on and on for everything that we do regularly. So the first thing I want to know is understanding from those farmers what kind of removals were going on. Why were they, re why were they removing cheetahs? Was it because they had livestock loss? Was it because they were having game loss? Was it because they perceived them as a problem? And we found that it was actually because it was a perceived problem. And so I went door to door, and I knocked on the doors, and I was an American woman right after independence of our country. But the farming community actually started to understand that I wasn't necessarily asking them about why did you kill the cheetah. I wanted to know how they farmed. I wanted to know everything about their farmland, which made me a friend of theirs. My background had been in agriculture, so I was very interested in how this worked. Then I, from the information I gathered from the farmers, I started learning more about the demography of those animals removed, the numbers of males, females, what farms, who removed the most, and the reasons why. And then looking at this, talking to the farmers about why some were removing and others weren't. So why weren't you removing cheetahs? What did you do? Those became some of our solutions for conflict resolution. So everything that you're going to hear today on much of this came from the farming community sharing this so that they could live with cheetahs. But understanding the behavior of cheetahs is probably the most important thing. The farmers didn't know anything. And so the play tree became one of our most important places to find out about cheetahs. We don't get to see a lot of wild cheetahs. We would see them in cages. Or if we radio collared, we'd learn about them by their movements. But some of the things um, as kind of a mystery, um, a, a detective, to learn more about it, we often use what we call black gold, which is the scat, or the feces of the cheetah. And that has told us an awful lot about how cheetahs live, from what they've eaten, and they would prefer to have uh, wildlife than that of livestock, collaborating that of what the, the farmers would say, to actually understanding the hormones of the different cheetahs that are coming into the different trees. Understanding their demography and the social behavior was also very, very important. Cheetahs live in a very social um, structure. Male cheetahs live together their entire lives, and they form what are called coalitions. And male cheetahs can actually hold a smaller territory. And they um, go to these play trees or these marking trees, and they will mark them, and they kind of hold down uh, uh, still a very large territory, about 200 square miles, and that's the core area, out of a large home range of about 800 square miles. But there's shared use at these play trees. So um, time sharing goes on with cheetahs as well. And the way a family unit will work is a female cheetah will go out and find her mate. So there is uh, female choice, mate choice, and she'll oftentimes go quite a distance out of her home range to find the male that she wants to breed with. And she finds them usually at these play trees. She will breed, the gestation is about 95 days, raise a litter of cubs, up to 18 to 22 months, at which point she's covering a large home range. At that point, she will rebreed. The young cubs go and stick together for about six months. And at that point in time, as the young females start coming into heat, territorial males will come and push the young brothers up to 200 miles away out of the female's home range. So the cubs are usually born in dens, and they can have up to six cubs 
Four to five is most average, but at the time we see them, when they leave the den at about six weeks, there are about three cubs left. And that's the same as what we've seen in the Serengeti, where there's, that's been a very long um, study in the Serengeti by Tim Caro and Sarah Durant, that that's in a protected area. These are in non-protected areas. So the cheetah cubs grow. Um, and they are very active in the play, and the play actually teaches them how to live out into the wild. But we find only 50% of those three, average, really live and reach independence. So those are some interesting findings from our studies. But a very important thing is that we found that our prime breeding-aged adults are the ones that are being removed. Not the cubs that many people are concerned about if cubs are killed, but our adult animals, when they're reaching five years of age, adult males, that are territorial, it takes them five years to get there till they're holding a territory and breeding, they're the ones that are removed by the farmers. Or a female, up to three years, when she's starting to come into reproductive age, she's the one that's being removed out of the population. Thus, the population isn't able to grow that fast. We've learned a lot about the biology of the cheetah. We've understood the diseases, the genetic makeup. Our population of cheetahs genetically is very healthy in Namibia. Although the cheetah is known for lacking genetic diversity. Studies that we did in the early 80s, we found that this caused them to be very susceptible to a variety of diseases, canine and feline diseases, causing them to have reproductive problems. And we've also found a lot of skeletal problems with the cheetahs and their morphometrics. And uh, we've now studied over 750 cheetahs, so it's quite interesting. This is my main research team in the, the lab, and our veterinarian is Arthur Baggett-Smith, and Josephine Hungali, and this is from young women, to know how lucky you are to be able to be in a, in a university um, setting. She was 36 years old when she was able to go to university. She was the first um, graduate in biology from University of Namibia to go into a master's program, and she has just graduated from that master's program two Saturdays ago at CCF. She's trained in reproductive physiology and veterinary medicine. And Bonnie Schumann is the specialist with all the farmers at this point and deals with me in a lot of the non-lethal conflict resolutions that we've found. But we also know that cheetahs have very poor sperm. Although it only takes one sperm to get a female um, pregnant, cheetahs have about 70% abnormal sperm, and this is what we see on a regular basis in the reproductive studies we do. All the male cheetahs that come through us, we actually bank them down before they're able to go back out into the wild, and we're now banking them for the future. We've been able to have, um, through artificial insemination, actual cheetah cubs born using sperm from Namibia, who the father had actually died two years beforehand. So these are techniques that are an important part of a field project, and so our genome resource bank is extremely important for not only the studies we're doing now, but for the future as well. And we work very closely with the National Zoo and Smithsonian on the work that we do with this. So I mentioned to you earlier, not all of our cheetahs can live in the wild. And now farmers aren't killing so many cheetahs. With that, oftentimes they bring us orphans. And about 20% of the cheetahs that we handle are orphaned animals. So we put a lot of care into those animals. And we also work with a lot of volunteers. Some of our own volunteers have been Earthwatch volunteers. We've got CCF volunteers. We have a lot of students that come and work with us as well. And they're from all walks of life. But everybody likes to meet the cheetahs. But this is 
what we oftentimes come across. And the survival is in human hands in many ways. This is a wonderful farmer. He was trying to save some cheetahs that have been um, out in the bush for a couple weeks without a mother and their herder ran across them and they were chirping away. We actually named them the Hogwart Trio after Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And the magic here was that never take a farmer's word that this was um, Harry right here, the little scar under um, his face. Well, surprisingly enough, a couple weeks later, he turned into a she when um, we actually were able to get our hands on her and find out that she was actually a she. These are just some of the human interest story that we deal with because our cheetahs then become educational ambassadors. They're non-releasable and we have them in about 200 acre camps. We're not able to breed cheetahs in captivity um, in Namibia because we're trying to keep them in the wild. We're also not able to import them into um, out of Namibia because uh, we want to not send our resources into other countries. We want people to invest in Namibia. And so they do act as very important um, parts of our behavior programs. And I thought this would be kind of interesting. Some people here have actually been to Namibia and helped us feed cheetahs. This isn't going to work. But this is actually uh, feeding a bunch of cheetahs there in Namibia. And I'm going backwards. So it was an interactive video with 11 fridge female cheetahs coming up and they're not an aggressive animal. You can put the food down and they'll actually run away rather peacefully. But we also have an ambassador cheetah named Chewbacca. And he has become quite well known. He was named after the Star Wars um, creature who flew the spaceships. But I always say that our spaceship is Earth and Chewbacca may be one of the drivers of this spaceship. And as people come over, um, they do get to meet him. And when you get your hands and get to be so close to an animal that's so endangered, I think it does change people's um, lives. And we have a new little orphan right now named Kanini. And she came in about um, two months ago, and she'd been tied to a tree for two months. And this, and I call her a survivor. Somebody yesterday asked me, are cheetahs as smart as dogs? Well, this is for some of the people from the zoo and the Humane Society that just wanted to get an idea. So she'd been tied to a tree, and Kanini means the little one, and so she came in. She's taken over the guest bedroom at this point. And then from there, she decided that since the dog had the couch, she thought that she should also have a couch. So cheetahs are quite intelligent. But the one who I think has taught her to be intelligent, that is Chewbacca right there. And this video may not work, though this one will. When she met Chewbacca, um, he's walking up that fence line there saying, well, let me tell you what it's like to be an ambassador cheetah. And that was, if you can get into the house, go to the couch and make sure that the bed has got the, um, the parents in it. And don't forget to tell the people who are there coming to our center, all of the school children, that um, we need help. And one of the ways that we're asking people to help is to sponsor our orphan cheetahs because we're using too much of our money to take care of orphan cheetahs versus trying to use the funds that we raise to actually keep them in the wild. So um, go onto our website and actually take a look and read the stories that are there. And um, we're hoping that those stories will help keep them in the wild. So in the wild is what we spend our time doing. We've been able to put over 400 of our cheetahs back into the wild. We do radio tracking of them. We've had a 10-year program of following how they're living. The farmers actually uh, work right with us. They've learned how they're living out on their lands. And now we're trying to find out from this how 
much more, how many more cheetahs are actually out there? So we're setting up little cameras, and the cheetahs actually take their own pictures. And this is a censusing technique. And we mapped out all of our land, um, and this is the area of, actually, our radio tracking showed us that this would be about five cheetah ranges, and it's about 600 square miles. And so it was so large, we broke it down, and we put 20 cameras in each one of these gridded areas. And this is where we put our cameras, and we found these areas because from our radio tracking, we'd known where cheetahs were going. There were play trees out there. There may have been um, a, a road that they'd been walking on. So we put our cameras in known areas, and then the cheetahs started taking their own pictures. And this was, we were able to identify these cheetahs by their spots, and um, from this, we've, we've actually been able to show that, yes, there were about five groups of cheetahs out in these areas. Every single cheetah has a different um, ID pattern, so understanding their spots and looking at those spots has been very interesting. We did a three-month study, which is our, our preliminary study. We had over 3,000 pictures, not just of cheetahs. Out of that, we have about 150 or more cheetah pictures that we're analyzing right now. We've had a few surprises, so these have been rather interesting. Again, this is what to do when you're not supposed to breed cheetahs in captivity, and your, um, your pen is actually very cheetah-safe, and we've never had cheetahs in or out of them in the last 16 years, except by a cheetah named Bob. And Bob we found in our camera trapping, and he had an, a tail that something had happened, and we caught him, brought him in, and, and he had to have his tail amputated. And we put him back out into an area which was next door to the female cheetah area, which is 200 acres. And in a drug stupor, he got over the fence, and three months later, we had Shiraz's surprise. <laughs> Boy, that was interesting to tell our wildlife department about. But from this, we were still trying to find out, can captive cheetahs go back out into the wild, um, ones that have been orphaned? And this comes back to my early years of trying to find out, can they go back? And so we're actually studying what stoff releases are, are all about. And that means not just throwing an animal out and not giving it any food, but putting a radio collar on the cat and following behind it and giving it food because learning how to hunt is not about being starved. It's figuring out where your home range is, where the wildlife is, where water is. So we've done that. We've put um, some cats out. We started last year with Rosie and Daisy. And they actually were quite successful within about six days in learning how to hunt. And they caught warthog, and they caught um, hartebeest, and um, they got oryx. So they were very, very successful. And every two days they were hunting. And at um, about six weeks, they decided that this 8,000-acre area that they were in, they wanted out because cheetahs live in 10 farms that size in a normal home range. So there she is going underneath that warthog hole. So we decided we needed to actually start studying game fences and how to keep cheetahs in and how to keep cheetahs out. So we set up something called swing gates, and our, our reserve where they are in that we're doing this study is called Bellabino, and it is a game farm because we're studying game farms and how much carrying capacity a fenced area can have with the game within it. So we went around to all of these um, warthog holes and around a 15-mile area, there were uh, probably about 500 warthog holes. And so we filled them in 
And um, we found the ones that were the, the favorite ones because as you filled them in, and we also put a lot of, I think, thorn bushes around them. And at, then we found some that the, were real special ones. And out of the 15 miles, we found about 150 that the warthogs wanted to continue going through. And so as they continued going through, we actually made these little doggy door warthog swing gates that go in. And you hold them up for the first two weeks, the warthogs go under and they go, wow, I don't have to dig the hole anymore. And as they go under, after two weeks, you drop them down. And now they run down the fence line and they get ready to go under their swing gates. So we're now showing that that's much less expensive than putting up electric fencing that many of the game farms were using, but that's very, very expensive. And also that the farmers then don't have to catch and kill so many cheetahs. So we're hoping that our swing gates can be um, useful. We now have Shiraz, though, out with her four cubs. And I told you that Rosie and Daisy started hunting at six days. They've been out now for about four months and they're still not hunting yet. So Shiraz really likes to um, get her food brought to her. Her cubs are growing up, but she's learning about this 8,000 acre area. And I do think that it's only a matter of time that she very well may become comfortable in learning how to hunt. The big question though is where do the cats go? So they can't just go out because they may come into conflict with local farmers. They can't go into a game reserve where there's lions. And so if they went into smaller game reserves like they're in now, you can't also maintain enough animals so that there's enough genetic diversity. So that becomes another big question on how indeed we can manage these populations uh, from captivity into larger areas. So I think this comes to what I like most, but I had to sort of tell a whole cheetah story. I like cheetahs a lot, but these are the people that I live with on a daily basis. And they really do look at you when you're talking about cheetahs. Really, what is the economic benefits to them for conservation? Um, and it's, they can't eat the animals necessarily. Um, and if they do, like they have in many of these communal areas, they've eaten um, all of the wildlife, and so all they have on their land is cattle, goats and sheep, and they're grazing that land so it's denuded and so that they cannot even keep very many cattle. So the big question is, is human and carnival coexistence possible? And what we've looked at is what are the human needs? And go around and talk to the people and find out what is it that you need? What's your land like? Um, can, what are the problems there locally? Um, are, there, are there different grazing ways? Are there different tribal ways? That, are there different ways that people revere wildlife or not? And then we've looked at tailoring our programs to meet local needs. And we've taken step-by-step -step planning and then education, which I think is probably the most important thing, into figuring out if human carnivore coexistence is possible. So my answer is yes, it can. And people now around the world are looking at this model in carnivore, predator, human conflict. And I think education is, um, is a means to an end. And so as I started this, I think today I probably know more about cheetahs. I think everybody working on cheetahs biologically, we could tell you everything there is about them biologically. But what we know is that we need to save them. We need to save their habitat. And in order to do that, we need to understand the people on whose land the animals are living. And then from that, we need to help the people on their land understand how they can live with this predator, and that is through education. We've developed very um, in-depth education programs. Our children have um, 
all activity guides that go out. In Namibia, we've dealt with over uh, 20,000 school children per year. We've developed a lot of student um, teacher guides which deal with the teacher's uh, role, uh, a predator's role in the ecosystem, which are cross-curricular. So we've tried to take this not just from the biological side, but actually put it through history, uh, mathematics, um, science, and really bring it full circle. These programs now have, from the cheetah that we've developed in Namibia, they are now working throughout most areas uh, where we've got programs working in Africa. So a similar model has now been set up in South Africa um, in education, working with the cheetah as a, um, a keystone species within an ecosystem. Education programs have been developed in Botswana, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Tanzania, and we're working in some of the northern countries. We've also developed a very active, interactive education center and museum. And I think believe, um, training the young biologist is extremely important. But having hands-on, this is something that I think in America we have everywhere. Um, tactical things, museums, young people. In Namibia, they don't have windows. That's not computers. They don't have um, school books. They really don't have much of anything. So having a place where they can come and learn about their ecosystems and how they fit into it, I think, is extremely important. And our staff is also very important. Uh, I am a, the voice here, but I've gone from a one-man show woman to having a staff of professional staff of 15 educators, community officers, biologists, and a community staff of over 20 people helping care for all of the programs that we have at our, our center. So it's a very large conservation program. But more importantly, it's training our future farmers of Africa and teaching them more about how to live on the land, looking at integrated systems of livestock and wildlife management. Most of these farmers, although they have lived on the land, they don't actually know how to live on the land. And that is counterintuitive to what people would think. They're out there and they know all about cows. I'm sure they know what a cheetah is. They know how to live on the land, but they don't. They're scared. They're scared of lions, cheetahs, leopards, elephants that they're living with. They don't know the difference between a, a virus or a disease. They don't know how to trim their goat's hooves so that the goat doesn't lag behind so that the predator doesn't catch that goat. They don't know that they should have 95% pregnancy within their calving herd versus 35%, and that will make them more economically viable as farmers. So we do a lot of training of future farmers. We put them through week-long courses where they come out understanding who did it. We take them out tracking, and they know exactly if it was a cheetah or a jackal. And we put communities through this, and they come out much more knowledgeable. We put a lot of books together, and these books, um, although these are illiterate farmers, they don't know how to read, um, they're reading a book there. But that book has actually been designed for them with a lot of pictures. And these pictures are very interactive, and they're fun, and they're a part of the pictures because we develop this with them in mind, with their, their help, asking them what their problems were, what they wanted to know. And then they share those books with um, the communities. And then the young children, so there's a method to our madness, they get in there because we've gone into the schools and we've helped the kids learn. And so it's parent-child working together in these communities, understanding that integrated systems of livestock, wildlife, and a predator can be a part of that, is going to maintain a healthy ecosystem. We train interestingly fun and simple things, how to build better corrals. 
Um, well, if you were a farmer in Africa, you would um, be, you'd be coming to us saying, why did the jackal or the caracal or the leopard just get in and kill um, 10 of my sheep? Well, a predator actually will get into a corral and they have a behavior to run. If a, a prey is moving, they will keep running. And so domestic dogs do the same thing. So ideally you want your corral to keep predators out. And predators are usually nocturnal. And this has big holes in it. And these are thorn bushes, and the thorn bushes are going in. So ideally, you want to say to the farmer, put all those thorn bushes out and make them thicker, because those thorn bushes will keep the predators away. Now, another fun thing that we've done, and this has to do with the dogs saving cats, is that we actually breed a um, guard dog. And these are a Turkish breed. They're called the Kangal Anatolian Shepherd. And we started this program about 12 years ago. And I'd learned about it when I lived in Oregon, when I found out that the farmers in uh, the United States were killing so many sheep, and we were putting millions, billions of dollars into trying to um, keep poisons going so we could poison the coyotes. But it's interesting. Most of our predators actually start reproducing more actively if their numbers are being um, reduced. And so coyotes and jackals are very similar. So monies went into non-lethal uh, programs and an organization called the Livestock Guarding Dog, Ray Coppinger, went over to Europe and he found about 20 different breeds of old world dogs that we'd forgotten about. And they went over there and found where they're living. Some are living in the high Alps, others live, are up in the, the Anatolian mountains, and they're out in different areas and they do different things. I selected the Anatolian Shepherd because it has a very short hair coat. It lives in an area very similar to Namibia, which is vast open spaces. The sheep and goats live unattended, so the dog has to be very intelligent, and these dogs are extremely intelligent. They are independent thinkers and don't need humans on the ground helping them protect their livestock, and they grow upright in the goat yard. Then we place these dogs when they're about eight weeks of age, and one of the things that we often say is um, we don't have to train the dogs. They're intuitive. They've been doing this for 6,000 years, but training the farmers is a really tough job. One of the things we find is they won't understand, you know, well, what do I feed the dog? No, they can't live on cornmeal mush. You have to try to feed them dog pellets. And then you look at their economy and figure out, well, how can they actually do that? So we actually help support many of these people in feeding of the dogs. But we place the dogs, and these young people are actually the herders of the local people's goats and sheep. And when I'm usually talking to a younger crowd, but many of you may have children, you might wonder what it would be like if your kids were out there protecting your livelihood. And that's really what it looks like in Africa. Those kids are taking care of the family's livelihood. The other issue, though, too, in Africa is that maybe these young kids, many of them will never be able to go to schools. Oftentimes, one child from a family is selected. And another thing that's interesting is young female don't often get an opportunity to go to school at all. And so educating young women is also very, very important. But these dogs are not only protecting the livestock, they're also protecting these young herders. So they grow up with the flock and they act as a guardian by barking loudly at the, any intruder that comes in. The goats aren't that bright. They um, are out there. If the goat baths and says there's something here, the dog's up on its feet immediately and says, I'm here and um, if you want to deal with anything, you can deal with me. 
And predators don't want to get hurt. They want to stay away. So there's actual avoidance that goes on. So these dogs have done great. We've had about um, 250 that we have bred and placed. And most all the farmers have indicated that the dogs are doing what they want and there is economic benefits to them having the dog because they're not losing livestock. So again, it's back to the economy. Another thing that we found over the years is that our habitat has changed. Namibia has had commercial farming for about 100 years. We've got multiple droughts that go on. It's a very arid country. And in the last 30 years, we've seen our land go from open savanna land, but you think of the cheetah going 70 miles an hour through, that would be the habitat that they would like to live in. Today, the last kind of um, stance for the cheetah to live in is very thickened bush. And this is thorn bush. And it's so thick that you can hardly penetrate it. So the cow and calf can't. There's also this thick bush. Uh, there's no grass that grows underneath because it's shading. And from this, we found that it's reduced the economy of Namibia by 50%, the agriculture economy, because the farmers have had to reduce the number of livestock they have. So it's really affected Namibia's economy. So this vegetation change over time has also changed the abundance and distribution of the wild prey species. That they, we found that the prey would actually like to be in areas that are more open, and yet the thickness of the bush. And that's why we think that the cheetahs are living in such huge home ranges. And so we started studying the areas where cheetahs liked best. These are the tighter corridors or the uh, territories. And we found that a territory, what it looked like, had a, a, a less thick bushed area and there was a higher abundance of prey in those areas. So we started looking at this and trying to figure out could we actually affect the change in the habitat of the cheetah. Farmers were killing more cheetahs if they had thicker bush. They were um, more unhappy. We found that cheetahs were actually scratching their eyes by going through this thick bush. We found that the cheetahs that were calling, being called problem cheetahs or catching livestock had a medical problem. We found many of them had this um, hazy eye syndrome. And um, with that, we thought that maybe something should occur. And coming from my Oregon roots, I knew that there was um, huge timber industries. There were things that people did with this bush that perhaps it could be a solution. And again, I said, well, I think somebody should go and talk to the people, the lumber companies in, in Oregon. And we spent people over here. They traveled around, and we found out a lot and realized that well, nobody was doing anything, and more cheetahs were still getting scratched, and we put in a grant to USAID to say, I think that we could maybe affect this um, bush encroachment that's taken over our country. This was actually a directive from our president of Namibia, who is our international patron, who read my annual report one year, and I told him that I thought things could happen, and by golly, he called me in and he said, let's do something about that. So we started doing biodiversity studies. Um, we then started doing selective harvesting. We do, do field chipping, and this is what sort of what our crew looks like. And out of this, I want you to notice that they're all in uniforms. They have safety equipment. Because what we've done, um, but now I didn't know this, that we were doing it, we've actually developed a new industry in Namibia, and that is now a, um, a, a kind of a, a forestry industry. And we've started putting a lot of people to work. Right now we have about 50 people into this. We've then taken those chips and we have made an environmentally friendly processing plant. And we're making these logs. I brought one, just you know, not many people carry their own log around the United States. 
Uh, but this tells more of a story about the cheetah, I think, than uh, my story about the cheetah, is that these thorn bushes now are being um, manufactured and sold throughout Europe because they're an ecolog. They're very hot, they're very, um, burn with very low emissions, and so they are now being um, desired throughout Europe and throughout the UK, which are our markets. This has taken us about eight years, uh, three years of dreaming, and five years of putting it together, and we just opened this plant in um, about uh, six months ago, and we've sent about 400 tons of this now over to um, England. So now, though, we've created over 50 jobs. Um, we're now looking at this. We've called it bush block, and so there's a cheetah on it. And as you buy this, there's actually a story on the back of it. It talks about the social side of it, the cheetah side, and how people around the world can actually become involved in conservation, which may, they'll never go to Africa, possibly. They never, ne may never see a cheetah. They may have seen it on a picture and say, wow, it's beautiful, um, or know that it's endangered. So this is, I think, trying to bring business together with people, and it's trying to make the world that much smaller. But this is now creating us a new story. We've started to learn so much about biomass, um, and we have so much bush in our uh, land. We're only using about 10,000 tons per hectare, and we've been able to use about 400 hectares a year. We have something like 1,100 million um, tons of bush. And so we started going, well, hmm, this isn't going to take anything away. We've got about a three-year regrowth, so it's sustainable. So we've now realized that we can actually make electricity. So in the very near future, we may be having what's called cheetah power, and that we may be using our bush and actually fueling our towns and buy, selling it to the grid and selling our fuel to other countries in Africa. So then what about our land? So we now have farmers who have learned that they can live with the cheetah. And we've gotten the farmers through a program called CANAM, which is the Conservancy Association, of farmers working together to manage their wildlife on the land to agree that they won't kill the cheetah. So we've actually had them sign a contract that says legally binding, I won't kill the cheetah. But they, they can sign that because they've learned how to live with the cheetah. They don't have to. And with that, we're now looking at an eco-label for the cheetah. We sell our beef. Um, in Europe. We have a, a beef um, export of about 10,000 tons each year, and it's a very important part of our economy. And it's the best beef in the world. It is range-fed, range-finished. It's got nothing in it except good grass, and it's predator-friendly, cheetah-friendly. So we're now developing an eco-label, and we're trying to sell this now in Europe for a price premium back to our farmers. So there's, again, a method to the madness that they will maintain cheetahs on their land, and then they're their cheetahs. They're making the profit off of it. And out of this, we're looking at a win, 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 win. So we encourage everyone to come to Namibia because there's another point to this. It's a, a lovely country. And today, our town of Ochivarongo, which is um, a very small, no place, and they used to, the farmers all around were killing eight and 900 cheetahs a year. This is now how they're marketing their town. They're calling it the cheetah capital of the world, and they're welcoming everybody to come into the town. But ecotourism is a one piece of the puzzle. So what I've done is shown you some of the other economic benefits, but we're now showing that the cheetah is better alive than it is dead, 
and that from the center of our little universe there and the Waterberg Conservancy, where our farms are, that today, worldwide, people are starting to travel to Namibia. Our country is lovely. It's the safest place in the world. It's democratic. Um, you could, any of you could get in a, your own car and drive up the roads and feel absolutely safe, and yet people are coming to see the cheetah. And the neighborhoods, or the farmers, are, um, are on board on this. They're starting to make a living because people are coming to their guest lodge. And they might not see a wild cheetah, but a farmer could take people out to that play tree. And they might see some cheetah scat, and they might find spore, but they'll see lots and lots of wildlife. And we're hoping eventually that the cheetahs will be less persecuted. They will come out and start showing themselves more. Maybe Shiraz and a cubs could go out into these areas because we now have good livestock management practices. So today, Namibia could be and will be, we hope, the future for the cheetah. So I think in the big picture, uh, why I'm here is to show you that there are innovations and that I took a problem that people perceive, vermin, an animal that is very endangered today, and tried to turn those problems into solutions for the local people because they don't care about the cheetah. They care about them, and I care about the cheetah, so I have to care about all of them, and I do like people. I have learned a lot of things that saving the cheetah is complex, and fortunately you got the short story on all of this, but you do have to deal with people. And we need integrated land use systems. And worldwide, you can't have mono systems. You can't just have livestock. Livestock and wildlife can live together. If you have them, predators can live together. We know that these programs can go into effect and can be very successful with all the predators around the world. But unfortunately today, the cheetah is still in dire straits. So from Namibia, we're showing solutions, but we also have problems in most of the other African countries where the cheetahs are living. We probably have 10 years to 20 years to make a difference, and I call this the now-now factor. Over in Southern Africa, there's two terms. One of them is now-now, and the other one's just now. And I think most of the people in the world are a just now, or a they. They'll take care of it, and just now means anywhere in the future. Don't worry about it. Now, now means today, this very second. And the cheetah really needs people to be aware this very minute that it is in dire straits and that we can make a difference because we have the tools, we have the intelligence, but are there enough of us to do it? And I always say when I'm meeting with people like you, young school children in Namibia, that you are the conservation armies. And you're going to now spread the word, I hope, not only about the cheetah, but the needs for um, all of our endangered species on Earth. We work with people throughout the cheetah's range. So we've taken our story from Namibia into all the different range countries where we've been invited. We've looked at the, the problems and we've looked at possible solutions. We've been up in Iran and invited in there. It was a huge honor to go up in there. Some of the problems are their game reserves have been taken over by sheep and goats. And the cheetah has nothing to eat because the wildlife has been scared away. They have such successful use of their livestock guarding dogs that nothing's allowed near the sheep and goats. So a solution there is don't use your sheep and goats to protect your livestock. Let's take the dogs away, or don't use your livestock guarding dogs. Take them away. 
Start moving your livestock out. And if you lose some, we'll compensate you for them because there's only 50 cheetahs in Iran. And the herders actually are interested in this. And sitting and talking to a herder in Iran is not something that a woman's allowed to do. And you have to, like, dress up. But perhaps we also need to be educating these women a bit more so they're also the ones helping to um, keep conservation and biodiversity. In Algeria, it was also very interesting. We selected that for North Africa as a place that may be the best solution to the North African cheetah population. There's about 200 living up there. They're in a reserve about the size of France. And within that, it's a reserve that has been developed around cultural things, rock paintings with nomads in it. The nomads got so excited when we were there last year that they now are spreading the word, and nomad word travels through this bush like you would, couldn't even believe they may become our partners then in conservation. In Kenya, we also have an active program. We've got three people on the ground there. And those problems are these large farms like we have in Namibia that are 10,000 acres have been broken down into 27-acre plots. And there the people on the ground have their, their uh, maize, their corn, their beans, their sheep, their goats, their chickens, their families, and the wildlife is gone. And the cheetah's trying to find its way through this maze. And we're not sure how we're going to affect that. In Kenya, there's 65% unemployment. And when you have unemployment, then you don't have, um, you, don't ha you, you have a much harder time of affecting any change. So Kenya is a continued challenge. And we're thinking that our programs in Namibia will continually give us insight of how to deal with the local communities. And we do, again, believe that future farmers of Africa is something that from Namibia is going to sweep through the continent so that our African landscape can be a, a very uh, beautiful Garden of Eden like it once was. If we're not successful, it's going to affect the economy here in North America. And as people get poor, the needs are going to get greater. And our country here is going to be the one who's going to um, be helping that. So it's good to help it now. So I think that we can save the cheetah, and in order to save the cheetah, we have to change the world. So I believe in um, a variety of levels, from the young people who are our future tomorrow, to our governments and our politicians, to people around the world working together. And we um, do have great collaborations from presidents to universities, and that's why I do thank you for having me here today at um, Colorado College. And our Namibian president is our international patron, and he's been quite a voice for the cheetah as well as for cons conservation. Namibia was the first country in the world to actually put um, in protection of the environment and sustainable use of our natural resources in our constitution. So we live and breathe it there. And our economy is based on a natural resource economy. And I'm very proud to be training our future leaders. Um, two of my main staff members who have been with me for years have graduated and are now the teachers of the other young people in Namibia. And this is growing. We have, we've put over 30 young Namibians through our internship programs. They're out teaching other Namibians. We're getting people from other African countries down. They're being trained in conservation biology courses. And they're going out to, um, to be the forces in those countries. So the race is on for the cheetah. And it is up to us, if we're creative enough, to figure out if the cheetah is going to win this race. And I think we are. And I ask all of you to join me. So think about going on our website, perhaps um, 
becoming a member of CCF, helping us if you are other nonprofit organizations or other foundations, find ways that we can partner together. Our synergies are extremely important because together we can do lots more than individuals on their own. So thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me here today. And I hope that I can come back. And I hope some of your professors and students will come over and also join us in Namibia to make a difference in the world. Thank you.